Good morning. After all that, I'm ready to close up and go home. It always takes me a minute to make the transition. After spending time in worship and, and hearing that fantastic testimony, thank you for that. Wow. We're all excited to see what God's going to do next. In that and in what each one of us is being called to. Well, let's make the transition into Genesis 14. And those of you that are new with us, we teach through the Bible chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And, and this morning brings us to the end of Genesis chapter 14. Where we find Abraham getting back from the slaughter of the kings. Let's take a minute and ask the Lord to bless this time. Lord God, I'm just feeling a hesitation this morning. God, I would pray that as we as we sit under your word, God, that we would desire to be transformed by it. God, we would desire to see your character. We would desire to see you, not just a, a system that you've put together, but God, that, that as we seek you, we would truly find you this morning. God, I pray that this would not be an exercise in in futility but God that we would truly be transformed by the renewing of our minds God I pray that your word would be clear to us we pray this in Jesus name Amen well as I as I started in this chapter many of you are studying Hebrews I know one of the the ladies' Bible studies are studying Hebrews, and, and one, of the, one of the flocks or one of the community groups is studying Hebrews. And, and this is one of those passages here in Genesis that has a, a, a major tie into the New Testament. Because we see this odd person named Melchizedek show up, and there's so many interesting ties into the New Testament through this, through this great man. Uh, but as I started moving through this passage, uh, I decided, you know, we're just going to we're going to jump straight from here to Melchizedek because he's the coolest part of this passage. And that's where we want to really stand. But as we kept going, it, doing that would not really uh, be true to this text because there's a whole nother piece of this text that kind of gets overshadowed. So in a way, there's like there's. Two, two twins in the belly of this, this passage. We have Melchizedek, which we do need to spend some time on. But we actually have the choices that Abram makes when he comes back from this slaughter of the kings. So this week we're going to spend time actually going through the passage. And next week we're going to dive into who this Melchizedek was and why he's so important to us. So this week... We're going to spend time actually going verse by verse right through this passage. So let's start in uh, verse 17. Genesis 14, verse 17. After his return from the defeat of Keterlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Sheveh. That is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. 
He was the priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young man have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Enner, Eskel, and Mamre take their share. So what do we have here? I'm going to back just a little bit so we can tie into last week and get an overview. So we have this this king, this uh, Ketileomer, who was no longer getting paid tribute by these other kings and, and these other nations. And so he decides to come and put an end to this rebellion. And so he comes through and he doesn't just go after those kings who stop paying tribute. He just marches through the land like an imperialist and starts taken over. And so this is, this is more like um, a Hitler moving through Europe. This isn't just a guy who's going to, to squash a little rebellion. Okay? He's taking over. And the reason we need to know that is because when he takes Lot, that was his first mistake. He takes Lot with him when he conquers Sodom and he moves on after he defeats the five kings in the valley. And one of them escapes and tells Abram. Well, Abram has a treaty with these three other guys that he lives around. And they gather up men. And it says that Abram has his 318 men. And so they head off in pursuit of this Ketileomer and all the kings that are with him. And he takes them over. He defeats them. Now, catch that for a minute. This man has been marching through the Jordan Valley... Just conquering everything in his path. Nothing could stop him. Nothing. And then Abraham grabs a couple of guys. Okay, so they were military guys. And he heads out at, heads out at them and he defeats this king. So when he comes back, he's coming back the most powerful the most wealthy man in Canaan. Nothing can touch him. And so when it says that the king of Sodom went out to the valley of the king to meet him when he came back, it was kind of like, there. it's like all the fanfare. They're coming back from war and he's victorious and, and, and he has all his armies marching and, and it's just a great big deal. Because he has conquered, it's almost like in World War I, these guys are singing, the Yanks are coming, the Yanks, because essentially Abram liberated all of these people that Ketileomer took with him. This is huge. So when it says they came to meet him, they came to, to, to honor Abram. And so that's the picture that we have in this valley. Hey, we don't have just some Abram sheep herder guy that's wandering into the valley after a long march. No, it was a long march, a couple hundred miles. 
a lot of fighting in between. But he defeated this imperialist crazy man who essentially just took the whole valley over. And so that's where we are when we get to this place where he's now in the valley and the king of Sodom comes out to meet him. Now, we learned about the king of Sodom last time. The king of Sodom, he was in all of these these battles and it says, as the king of Sodom or the kings of Sodom were running away, what happened to them? Well, it says most of them fell into the tar pits because there were all these tar pits in the valley. And so as they're running away, most of these kings just fell in the tar pits and died. They're gone. So who's this guy? He's either one of the kings that didn't go. So already we know who he is. Some coward that has no name. Some pagan, wicked king of Sodom. Go ahead, put all the titles on him you want. We know he's from Sodom. We know what he's made of. But he's one that either fled to the hills and made it. Or one that never went to begin with. So here he is in the valley in front of Abram. And then the, 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 the story, the narrative kind of changes just slightly. It says, But then this other king, the king of Salem, Melchizedek, shows up with bread and wine. Now, when something like that comes up in Scripture, you have to ask yourself, uh, So what? Why do, why do we have to know that he brought bread and wine? And so you've got to dig just a little bit. Hey, so the, the normal thing that someone would bring out to refresh the soldiers would be bread and water. And that would refresh the soldiers, and it's just a, a nice thing to do. But when he brings bread and wine, it's because he's a king. And he's treating these people who have come back as royalty. You don't give normal, everyday people the wine. That's a, a royalty thing. And so when Melchizedek comes and gives him bread and wine... He's essentially validating Abram as royalty. That's a big deal. He brings out bread and wine and essentially is, is stating that um, this Abram is more than just a normal person. And again, we have to know that because he's now the most powerful, unquestionable, most powerful man in Canaan. Okay? And so then this happens. It says, he blessed Abram. And let's read that blessing again. It says... Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. Now, in ancient times, blessing each other was just a normal thing to do. Bless you. Hachu! Bless you. I mean, it was just a... It was, okay, it wasn't that. But blessing each other was a normal way of communicating to one another. But this is a little bit different. Because... Melchizedek was a priest and it says he was priest of God most high that's not a normal title for Yahweh that's not a normal title for the Lord Adonai we've seen all these different names for God throughout Genesis yet have we seen God most high possessor of heaven and earth we have not seen that yet and so we have this this Melchizedek who's king of Salem ancient name for the city of Jerusalem he's this king of Salem who comes out and he's the priest of God Most High. And it's interesting that Melchizedek isn't related to Abraham in any way. He's kind of more like Job or Jethro, Moses' father-in-law. They're not really related to the Hebrew people, but yet they haven't been contaminated by all the paganisms and superstitions of Canaan. 
So it's somebody who still chose to, to worship the God most high. Now, was it the real God? Was it really Abraham's God that this guy was a priest of? Or was it just another one of those priests, kind of like when they went to Egypt and we had all these priests? When you look up the word priest, there's just priests all over the place. And how do we know that he was not just some other priest? Well, we do know. But we have this Melchizedek who comes in and blesses him. Now, because the office that he's in, this is why this isn't just a normal everyday blessing. One, Abraham, Abram at that time, allows this man to bless him and then turns around and pays him a tenth of everything. And so when he's doing that, he's essentially subordinating himself. The most powerful man now in Canaan is subordinating himself under this Melchizedek. He's essentially saying, you are superior to me. Because the blessing does not go but one direction. Inferior does not bless superior. It goes the other way. Fathers bless sons. Superior blesses inferior. And so the most powerful man in in Canaan is sitting there being blessed by this odd person who shows up out of nowhere, the king of Salem. So it's a very interesting time. When he pays that tithe, he's validating that this priest of God Most High is in fact the priest of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, the same God whom Abraham has heard, I'm going to make you a great and mighty nation. That's how we know that this Melchizedek is actually the priest of the same God that Abram worships. Okay, That's how we know it in, in Genesis. Well, let's keep going. He pays him a tenth. Now, this is an interesting piece here. Oh, well, let, me, let me note this. Um, next week, we're going to spend the entire time on this odd character Melchizedek. Because Melchizedek weaves his way, or God weaves this man through Scripture from here all the way through the law, the prophets, through the New Testament, Melchizedek continues to show up. And it's, it's much like this. When you're, you're building a house and, and you build a wall, and, and some of you that build probably just are, fa- I'm fascinated by this. When I was a kid, right after high school, I went and built log cabins. And my job was simply to take a draw knife and peel logs. That was my job. And then do what I was told. This will fit, trust me. And as I see this log cabin, it's just the ugliest thing. Because none of the logs fit together. It just kind of goes up and there's holes in the walls and there's all these things. But it's because I didn't really see the blueprint. I just see these funny holes in places. And later on as this log cabin comes together, we see that those funny holes that didn't really match up are actually windows. And when you cut them out nice and rectangular, it's beautiful. But... I didn't, I didn't see the blueprint. My job was just to shave logs and, and put them where I'm told. Well, here is one of those places where Abram, Melchizedek, and everybody involved, they don't really see the blueprint of what God's putting together here. God, these people have no idea why God orchestrated this fantastic meeting between this priest of God Most High and Abram, They have no idea why this is taking place. And Melchizedek blesses him because he's just called by God to do it. And and Abram is compelled to pay him a tenth, this tithe. And he doesn't really even know why other than it's just obedience. He does what God has called him to do. But later on, as we start going further and further and we see this blueprint, 
We just, when I watch this, I sit back and go, wow, God really did write the Bible. When the Bible says that, that it is inspired by God, only God could orchestrate the writing in 1400 B.C. to write down, have Moses write down that this, this event between Melchizedek and Abram happened so that later on, when the church is being birthed and these Jews are struggling, and we'll talk about this next week, with coming over to the New Covenant, he says, oh, but wait. Remember back when Melchizedek And so this is a window right here that God is forming for us that we're going to look into next week and spend the whole time looking at what it means for the priesthood to be drawing us near to God and how Christ is able to do that for us. So that's just a snapshot into next week, but we're not going there this week. We're going to finish up on on what uh, the king of Sodom is doing here. So Abraham is blessed. He pays him a tenth. Then comes the king of Sodom, where we return the narrative back to him. The king of Sodom then stands up and he says, give me the men. It's arrogant son of a gun. When I read this, every time I read this, I just kind of, oh, can you imagine? This man's got nothing other than he's got a nice robe and maybe a, a thing on his head and a broken down kingdom. He's got nothing because when Ketelamer came and took over Sodom, he took everything with him. He took his sheep, he took his donkeys, he took everything, and he marched away with it, leaving this man empty. Nothing. And then when, when Abram went in pursuit, he goes in pursuit, he defeats this guy, and he brings it all back. Who owns it now? Abram owns all of it. The men, the sheep, the money, the tuna fish, everything. He's got it all. And this king waddles out into this valley and says, Give me the men. What? Abram just must have had infinite patience. And he says, You know what? Well, hold on just a minute. Because this is actually valid. Because it's more than just give me the men. He's essentially bowing down to him and saying, You know what? You can have the money. You are the most powerful man here. But we know that this Cadlamer, he's probably coming back. I'm reading things in here, but he's probably coming back. And, and I'd like to protect myself. Can you give me my fighting men back? You can keep the sheep. I know that one's mine. But think through that for a minute. But then Abram says the most strange thing. Because, and as I, I struggle with this the whole time that I've been looking at this. There is no reason for Abram not to take this stuff. None. Well, one, which we'll get to, but, but naturally speaking, he has just walked hundreds of miles, probably lost a couple men. It cost him a lot to do this. This wasn't free. It's war. He goes and he battles and he wins. He wins and he brings all the booty back. It's all his. And he worked for it. It's his. But he says to this man, I have made a vow. I have lifted up my hands to the Lord God most high. Stop there for a minute. Interesting. Abraham never has called the Lord that yet. Abraham calls the Lord the Lord. And after meeting with Melchizedek, he says, I've raised my hands to the Lord, the God most high. And so something in that meeting with Melchizedek has has strengthened Abraham's resolve, I think. And I, when, when you think about how God puts people in your life to strengthen things, 
and you, you think to yourself, oh, what's coming? Because God is so just strengthened me right now. And then you move into something. Well, it, it's almost like that's happened here. Mel, Melchizedek came first, strengthened his resolve, and then he stood in front and was tempted with one of the greatest temptations with this king of Sodom. Take it all. He says, I'm not going to take a thread. I'm not going to take the thong of a sandal from you so that nobody will say, you made me rich. Now, let's read some things into that. I guess in the ancient times, as I studied through this, ancient times, mercenaries were just a normal thing. And so you gather your 318 men. Oh, look, there's a battle. Sweet, I'm going to get me some free sheep. I'm going to go battle this guy. And when I'm all done with the battle, I will win and I get to keep the stuff. This is just a normal thing. It happens all the time. Now they could, this, this Abraham could hide behind the, oh, he took my buddy Lot. Well, as we've learned before, there's no connection between him and Lot anymore. Lot made his choice. And so if he were to say, oh, they got my, my, my nephew Lot, I'm going to go out and I'm going to conquer. I'm going to go out and get these men back and I'm going to bring back the, the loot. But in the end, I'm going to keep the loot. Then that would diffuse everything we learned last week. If that was Abraham's frame of mind, he wasn't really just a kinsman redeemer then. He was out after the money. Or this. In the end, here's what the king of Sodom is handing to Abram. Think about this for a minute. He comes back with everything. King of Sodom, maybe the most powerful one there. The other kings are with him. They essentially hand Canaan to Abram. That's what they've done. They handed, him a, they, they handed him the promised land. Now, wait a minute. Think through this for a minute. Just a little while ago, he marched through the land of Canaan and God said, I'm going to give you everything from here to here to here to here to here. This is the promise. This is your land. And after your people have been in captivity for 400 years, they're going to be released and they're going to they're live here. This is your land. And now you have this man standing in front of Abram saying... Look, just peace up with us, and we'll give it to you. You can have it. You can short-circuit the system right here. Now, he didn't say it that way. He, they simply said, here, you can have it all. And Abram said, mm not a thread, not a thong of a sandal. I'm taking nothing from you. Now, that's Faith. The same reason that Abram got up and went after Lot because he knew he's invincible. God's going to make him into a great nation. He went after him. And coming back, he still knows that God's going to make him into a great nation. And he does not need to make any allegiance with some wicked king for God to fulfill his promise with him. He doesn't need to do that. This sounds a lot like... After Jesus was in the desert and he fasted and the devil took him and started started uh, tempting him and he takes him to a high place and he says, look, I know what you want. You want the kingdom of the earth. Just say that I gave it to you. Just, just worship me and I will give all of this to you. That's what he told him. So short circuit the system right here. This is what you want. Jesus said, get away from me, Satan. Well, that's kind of what's happening here. Abram is standing in a place where the promise is being handed to him in the wrong way. And he can choose to take it and make these allegiances 
Or he can choose to say, no, no, God is going to make us into a great nation. This is the way it's meant to be. And that is what he chose. And, and when I worked through this, I had to change the title of this message. I don't even know what it used to be. But in the end, the real focus on this passage is that faith chooses God. That is this passage. When he has this choice put in front of him between taking the worldly way or having faith that God will supply, he chose to let God fulfill the promise. And some of you should be struggling right now with why there is that choice. I've been struggling with this all week. Why is it even a choice here? But some insights into this passage. First off, we have these, these two people that are diametrically opposed. You have the king of Sodom, absolute wickedness, who's coming and essentially telling Abram what to do, handing him this, this Canaan on a silver platter, and all you have to do is just make allegiance with us, essentially compromise this promise so that we can all live here together. And then you have on the other side, you have Melchizedek, who simply comes and affirms him and says, blessed be Abram by the God most high. Just reaffirms his calling already, the promise that God's already given him. And then also affirms that, you know what, that battle that you just went in, be careful, it's not you. God delivered your enemies into your hand. Blessed be the God most high who delivered your enemies into your hands and reminds Abram, this was not you. God has promised to make you into a great nation. This is just a step toward that. God is with you. And so we, we have God putting, he's making this contrast between, right in front of us. What's Abraham going to do? And as I sat back then and went back through Abraham's life, Abraham's entire life is made up of these things. Abraham's entire life is made up of mapping faith to reality. Is Abraham going to listen to God's word and act on it? Or is Abraham going to take some easy way out and try and short circuit the program? Or not trust God? We have times when he was in Egypt and he didn't trust God and what happened there. Pretty soon we're going to have him trying to short circuit the program again by bringing his own offspring and not allowing God to do it his way. But in this case, what we have is Abraham actually choosing to believe the word of God and allow God to work out these details. His entire life is worked out this way. And as a believer, our entire life, every single day is this way. Every day we stand in this place where we can choose to believe God at his word or we can choose to be conformed to this world. It happens every single day. We can choose, and, and you know, a number of the things that I read here, it was interesting, over and over and over again, they continue to say, you know, faith really is the, it, everything that you do in life, whether you're sinning or whether you are operating in the spirit, is all a reflection of your faith. It just seems so simple. But when you think it, through, if I really believe that God hates lying, there are six things God hates, seven he abhors, six he abhors, seven he hates. Three of those are something about not being truthful. 
if I know that God hates lying and I believe him at his word, I'm not going to lie. And when I do lie, what's that doing? I'm choosing not to take God at his word. And all these other things in scripture that, that we wrestle with in our flesh, where is it with our faith? The practical, a working definition of faith is simply believing God at his word. It's as simple as that. Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of God. That's faith. Abraham believed God and it was accredited to him as righteousness. It's his faith. Let's read this one passage. I stumbled across this one. It's one of those ones where you could read it a hundred times in Ephesians 1 and not connect it this way. Ephesians 1 verse 13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. Your salvation is an act of believing God at his word. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God actually raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Faith is meant to create some kind of change. And, and here's how we know that. The word tells us that no one is righteous. No, not one. Not one person seeks after God. That's what it says. So when you're confronted with God's word, every single one of us should open it up and say, "Uh -uh." uh-uh. It should make you blush. When you read God's word, it should make you a little uneasy because no one seeks after God. No, not one. And therefore, when this thing tells you, here's what I demand for you, here's righteousness, here's what I desire of you, Here's how, what it means to come to Christ and have everlasting life. Here's what you have to do. It should make you just wince because your flesh doesn't desire this. And so if you've come to Christ, one of the things that you know has happened is your faith has generated action. It's, you've made choices. And just like here with Abram, his faith allowed him to make this choice between being handed Canaan on a silver platter or allowing God to work out the details. That's what he's put in front of him here. So here's, here's the struggle as we wrap up here. Here's the struggle that I've been, I've been fighting with all week. Why is this a choice? Why did Abraham actually have to choose this? He worked. He battled. He fought for this loot. It's his. Legitimately, it's his. And so he comes into this valley, and he's confronted with this contrast. How does he know that he's about to be duped? How does he know that glorifying God would mean, do not accept this king's money or this offer? It's his anyway. When he paid the tenth, it's his Why did he turn it all back to them and say, I'm not going to allow you to ever say you made me rich or that you had any part in God making me into a great nation? How did he know that? When he looks behind him, all he sees is wealth. And then this other man blessing him. How did he know? And we run into this question every day. What do we do next? Right? 
What's God going to have for us next? What am I supposed to do here? I have these two choices in front of me, and I'm not exactly sure which one to take. There's no, no doubt here at all. Abraham made his decision. It was almost already pre-made. He had already raised his hand to God and made an oath. He's not going to take anything from this man. This wasn't even a decision. It was done. And Dan preached a message all the way at the beginning of Abraham where he said, maybe it was Noah. I just remember the phrase that walking with God, these decisions work themselves out because you're walking day by day with God. And there's a passage in Romans 12 that says, Do not be conformed any longer to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. What's happening there? You don't seek God, but you're being renewed by God's word and you're believing it. Faith is believing God and his word. You're taking his word and you're allowing it to transform your mind. And that's the part we always quote to each other. Don't be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world. We quote that to our kids all the time. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Make sure you get in the word. But you know what it says next? Verse 2. Then you will know what God's will is. God's good, pleasing, and perfect will. As we walk in the spirit, as we walk with God, as we're continually ingesting God's word, when these questions come up in our life, we can act by faith because we can believe God. When it says in Psalm, taste and see that the Lord is good, as we respond in obedience... We see, the, we see the Lord work in our life. And it, it kind of encourages our spirit to be able to take that next step in faith. When Abram saw that God delivered the enemies into his hand and he came back and then he had Melchizedek come and bless him and reaffirm his calling, Melchizedek had all the resolve he needed to stand in front of the king of Sodom and say, Go away. This isn't even a temptation to me. Get out. And that's where we need to be as we walk with the Lord daily and we're ingesting his word and we're allowing it to transform our minds. Then those decisions between the gray areas become significantly more clear. I'm not going to say that they're always easy. But we will know what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. And the 500 things that are obvious, humility, stepping outside, your all these other things, Those are the obvious ones. The gray areas, though, they also will begin to clear up. And so this passage, faith chooses God, that's exactly what Abram does here. And he does it because he trusts God at his word. He went and pursued because he trusted God, and he came back and denied the keys to the kingdom, essentially, because he trusted God at his word. And that's where we need to be. Let's stop there. Lord God, I would pray that we would be people that are after your heart. That it would be our desire, God, to be transformed according to your word. And Lord, that the faith that you've given us, God, will it will be active. That your word will be living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, God, as we as we allow the Holy Spirit to use it in us. God, I would just pray that you would give us all the desire to know you through your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.